you're listening to The Dollop. Uh, this is a bi-weekly American history podcast. Each week, I, Dave Anthony, read a story from American history to my friend. Gareth Reynolds, who has no idea what the topic is going to be about. Let's get to it. All right. Wow. God, you want a little hit of dude? I'll do one bottle. <laughs> people say this is funny? Not Gary Gareth. Dave, okay. Someone or something is tickling people. Is it for fun? And this is not going to become the Tickling Podcast. Okay. You are Queen Fakey of Made Up Town. All hail Queen Shit of Liesville. A bunch of religious virgins go to mingle. And do what? Pray. Hi, Gary. No. Nicely done, my friend. No. Um, April 15th, 1942. Okay. Kenneth Lay was born in Tyrone, Missouri. Okay. Do you know what it is yet? No. Interesting. Wait, Kenneth Lay? Uh-huh. Uh, Ken Lay. Ken Lay. Yeah, that name rings a bell. His family lived in a tiny, uh, tiny farm towns. Oh, now uh, I know it. With outhouses and dirt roads. Okay. Yeah, wow. So in ra- the forties. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's raised a poor uh, Missouri kid. All right. Uh, I don't. I think Missouri still doesn't have dirt uh, paved roads. Right. He had never lived in a house with indoor plumbing uh, up until the age of eleven, Ugh. which is awesome. That's called living large. Ugh. Uh, they owned a feed store. That really is so gross. The way that that used to. Oh, an outhouse situation. Uh, I mean, I can't think of anything worse. Why not just not like they would it? have looked at porta potties and been like luxury. Oh, a porta potty to those people. Uh, like just heaven. Man, a urinal too. So the Lay family owned a feed store okay. uh, up until their delivery man crashed the truck and killed a load of chickens. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then that wiped out. Got the- your chicken feed? <laughs> oh, no. That wiped out the family business. That Oh, my God. Yep. Just one truck killed, killed all the chickens. Well, that's our life. <laughs> that's over. Shame about that. We should do something else then. Well, that's everything over. Uh, so his father had to go on the road as a traveling stove salesman. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard enough oh. to get in the door without a thing that won't let you get in the door. Uh, ma'am, if you could just come yes? out to the door here. Now, uh, and, outside uh, of my own home? If you would, yes, it's on the, I'm, uh, I have, it's on the lawn. It's enormous. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a, a stove. Oh my God. It's, uh, it's hurting the grass, I think. Uh, just uh, a couple of points. It's self-cleaning. If you don't uh, buy it, I'm going to kill myself. Can you turn it on? No, it's uh, not hooked up. Well, I don't want to. I don't. What wanna. am I supposed? How am I? Can you cook on? I mean, what can you? Yeah, if it's hooked up inside. I. I, I it's don't, not hooked up. I don't know how to get it out of here. I'm so not. I don't want it. I just need you to go ahead and buy that. Okay, you're good. Thank you, ma'am. Very good. Ken went on to uh, the University of Missouri, where he became interested in economics. Sure. You can uh, probably figure out why. <laughs> yeah, he was like, anything. He graduated in 1965 and uh, worked in Houston at Humble Oil. Uh-huh, interesting. The, which was is the- now known as Exxon. Uh, Starting out as Humble Oil. So uh, humble. That's the thing about Exxon. That's what comes to mind. Humble. I do. I I am just uh, like I think I mentioned this before, but the uh, like the way the oil companies advertise it it just oh, infuriates you. Yeah, of course it does. We're the we're the last ones who want polluted oceans. You're like, no, we, no, you aren't. We are. We make birds. Come like, on, it's we make crazy. sure to communicate. Yeah, they're really BP slowly fucking everything up. 
so he took night classes to get his PhD while working there. Uh, he enlisted in the Navy in 1968, okay. and he worked at the Pentagon uh, while teaching graduate students economics at George uh, Washington University. Okay. In 1971, he was married and had two kids. Ken, quote, Everyone knows that I personally have a very strict code of personal conduct that I live by. This code is based on Christian values. Okay. So you can't deny that. Well, I, I, well, what do you mean I can't deny you that? You can't deny it. You just told me it, so I'm not going to deny it. I mean, I, I can't deny a lot of this stuff. I'm just hearing it. You can't. Don't deny it. I'm not. In October 1972, President Nixon made Ken the Deputy Undersecretary of Energy in the Interior Department. <laughs> At 30 years old, Ken was a go-to man on energy policy during uh, the oh, early... Oh, I remember who I... Okay. Uh, 1973, when the country suffered electrical brownouts, natural gas shortages... What year? In 1973. Okay. And the Arab oil embargo. Naturally, Ken blamed regulation. Right. New York Times quote, Mr. Lay said regulation has kept natural gas prices far below the real value of gas in a free market, discouraging investment in petroleum development... The Nixon administration may press for deregulation of natural gas prices. There it is, right? Yeah. Right there. It's going to work out. That's it. Then Ken... That's when it started. Yeah, it's going to work out. It starts right there. It's going to be fine. We could change that moment. (laughs) Then Ken reached out to the CEO of Florida Gas and told me he was thinking of going back into the private industry. Ken believed that real deregulation of the natural gas industry was coming, mostly because he was pushing it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All the big names that recommended him for the it's job. It's like making the weather and being a meteorologist. <laughs> <laughs> How are you so accurate? So all these big names recommended him. He, he's a shining star. He gets the job. By okay. year's end, Ken was a vice president. By 1976, he was president of the pipeline division at Florida Gas. And by 1979, president of the entire company. Okay. He owned a $300,000 house, joined the Winter Park uh, Racket Club, bought a beach condo on the Florida coast and a ski condo in Utah. And by 1980, he was banging his uh, secretary while st- still married, uh, banging Linda uh, who he then made his second wife. So he's, he's so wait, living... he, he was he was banging his secretary, and then he turned the bang into a marriage. Yeah, and divorced his other wife. Right, right. And right now he's making a shitload of money. Yeah. Okay. Things are uh, good though. Yeah, this is fucking great. Then in uh, June 1984, Ken Lay became chairman and CEO of Natural uh, Houston Natural Gas at the age of 42. Okay. So he set out expanding the business, buying pipelines in California and Florida. And in 1985, it's so weird that a guy who was Working to deregulate stuff in the government, then went and just started buying up pipelines. Anyway. Yeah, and you, what's 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 weird is how uh, that never stops now. Huh? That's all it is. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you do. So he starts buying pipelines in California, Florida, and in 1985, his company merged with InterNorth and became the largest gas distribution system in the country, running from border to border, coast to coast. They needed a new name for the company, obviously, because they merged. And Uh-oh. after four months of research, Here we they settled on Enteron. Oh, we're so close. But then the Wall Street Journal reported that Enteron was a term for the digestive tract. Ah, uh, better. Where did these names are so ridiculous. Yeah. The way that they like they, that they test market these dumbass names. Well, four months. Yeah. Four months because you have name. a marketing team who's like, we've come up with it. Aquaditor. <laughs> Think about it. Nobody will. It's perfect. And here, it's a smiling ham. He's your mascot. What about a oil fucks people? Uh, no, no. We're going with Integrason. Okay. It's like car names. 
When so, car, na- car names are insane. The, the car names are ridiculous. They're just they're nuts. The Mercury scrotum is the worst. Ah. The board called an emergency meeting because uh, they had to pick a new name and decided to go with Enron. Mm-hmm. They had to repaint seventy-five thousand dollars cover, seventy-five thousand covers for the annual report that year. Oh God! But in nineteen eighty-six, Enron reported a loss of fourteen million in its first year. Huh, that's not good, right? Ken Lay made job cuts, froze pay for top executives, and started selling off assets. So now he's selling the pipelines that he bought. By January of 1987, Enron's credit rating was downrated to junk status. From an executive, quote, the company was in deep shit. Okay, so he's not pulling any punches. Well, it seems like Ken may not be good at running a business. But Ken is doing well. Yeah, yeah, but it seems like he might be that, might but not does be that, that good at this job. But does that matter? We'll see. Um... But there was Enron Oil. This is the flashy part of the business, right? The oil. Well, Enron Oil. So it's it's the Enron. Their di- energy. There's tons of different you know sub divisions, companies. But it's here. all so, energy. So Enron right? Oil is right. one of one right. of the. It's the flashy part of the business. It's the oil trading division of the okay. company. Right. Oil trading speculation had taken off since the mid 1980s. Oil trading speculation is a future contract between a buyer and a seller. I know this is hard. I had to go over this many times in okay. my own brain. So the buyer agrees to purchase a certain amount of oil at a fixed price for uh, the length of a contract. Okay. So so, so basically you're, you're you're saying I'm going to buy oil for whatever 20 for, for the next 20 10 years. years. Okay. 10 years. Right. That's what we're doing. Right. So no matter which way the market fluctuates if the, if the oil if the prices go up one person benefits and it's almost goes down no, And benefits. is that almost why they do it? It's almost like I, a gamble? I, I believe so. Okay. Well, and then traders bet on what the price of oil is when it's being delivered. So like seven years down the road, they're betting that it'll be more or less. I, I don't want to know this. Yeah, no, it's, it's I, I fucking complicated bullshit. And no, but I understand what you're saying. It works for some some things. Right. But oil, it's not a great right. thing. So, uh, so, But they're making tons of money. Right. That, that section. The oil division is. Yeah. Okay. The trading division. The head of Enron Oil kept Dom Perignon and caviar in the office refrigerator for prick. afternoon toasts. What a prick. When they made a deal. In 1985, they made $10 million. In 1986, they made $28 million. Now, that's when the business overall is losing. So they're the only fucking the thing. The oil money. division is making The money. trading. Yeah, the, the speculators are the right. only okay. thing right. making money at right. this point. Okay. Things got really going in 1989 when Congress passed the Natural Gas Decontrol Act. Which stated that first sales of natural gas were to be free of any price regulations. Uh, okay, so now they whatever. can just do whatever they want. I mean, kind of. <laughs> now, this is the culmination of 30 years of them trying to push for deregulating the gas industry. They finally get it through. It required the complete restructuring of the inter- interstate pipeline industry. So the whole industry has to change because of this. Okay. Fewer regulations are finally here, right? Right. The Thank next God. year, Enron formed Enron Finance. And Kenley hired Jeff Skilling as CEO and chairman. So Skilling was a Harvard Business School graduate who came from a prestigious business consulting firm that valued brains and theory over experience. Right. Good. Good. I will say uh-huh. that's at least better than what we have a lot of the time now. <laughs> Like, it, you, you hearken back to when that was the shit option. Yeah. 
Now, we want a smart guy with theories instead of someone with experience. Oh, what about this guy who I met at a party? Oh, fuck nuts, Tommy? Yeah, you want to use... He's great. Give him the job. Senator fuck nuts, I demand an answer. What? Ah. So, uh, Skilling was called, quote, brilliant, the smartest person I've ever met. He said the natural gas business was, quote, appalling. The screwiest business I'd ever seen in my life. All the rules were written in Washington. It was like Alice in Wonderland. Wow. It's so weird. When you were saying that, I was like, it sounds like a Mad Hatter quote. Uh, uh-huh. Like, <laughs> I wonder if, yeah. All right. I wonder if that actually was a Mad Hatter quote. I don't know anything about, um, is that a movie about rabbits? Keep going. And uh, they loved Jeff's skilling at Enron. One executive said, quote, he is a designer of ditches, not a digger of ditches. What does that even mean? That's what? elitism fucking shit fuck so he, talk. So he tells the people how to dig the ditch? Basically. Isn't there a better thing to well, be than that Well, he designs the ditches. How about the guy who tells the guy to tell the guys? He's the guy who looks at the thing and says, we could put a ditch here. Dig it. Dad, dig another ditch. What a great idea. It was difficult to disagree with Skilling because he would elevate it to an intellectual disagreement and it was hard to outsmart him. You know the type. Another said, quote, anyone who disagreed with him was dismissed as just not bright enough to get it. He was always right and not into being questioned. You, you know what that like huh? when, I, when you say that, what that just makes me think of is the attitude of Facebook that people have on <laughs> Facebook. That, well, no, skilling is like early Facebook. Yeah. And just like really good at commenting really long shit where you're like, you know, I just give up. I can't read all this shit. And he's yeah. just saying a lot of names I haven't heard of. Yeah. Uh, Jeff was known to yell, just do it, just get it done, instead of listening to people. Okay. Which is a good sign of a leader. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and being a genius, Jeff came up with the gas bank idea. So instead of paying gas producers over this 20-year contract that we talked about, right? Right. He decided they should give them cash up front. And in return, they'd get a long-term supply of gas. So he so now they are now they are settling in on that price. So he's saying, but in the I contract want, that so it's almost just affirming the contract. Yeah, basically putting now, your money where your mouth is now. Yeah, instead of the end of the contract figuring out right now, you're like, I'll pay you this right now. Yeah, okay. So gas producers are happy. That's to just take kind of it. a put your balls on the table move. It, I think that's technically exactly what it is. Okay. So gas, the gas producers are excited to get that because it, it's, it's like they have a partner in the business while they're getting the gas, blah, right, blah, blah. Right. You get a long-term contract. And, and so it works. Producers and customers were signing contracts. Natural gas then becomes a really popular fuel for utilities. And they start building new gas-fired plants around the country. And the country becomes more reliant on natural gas. Mm-hmm. So it's all looking up. Okay. What? <sighs> we just... Jeff Skilling. You know what? Huh? That's a really good example of hiring someone with a brain and theories over experience. Just trust me. This guy's going to be good. He's going to come up with new ways to do things. He's going to blow your mind. So Jeff then figured these new uh, natural gas contracts could be traded. <laughs> so wait. Huh? What? Like... The way oil future contracts are traded. It's like he's combining poker, well, craps, and blackjack. Yeah. So instead of actually owning natural gas reserves and pipelines, Enron would just own a bunch of contracts. 
So now they're not owning anything. They're owning con- – so, he, they're, so now they're, the they're, contracts so they're, so are the value. Right. So they're buying this thing and then they're immediately selling it off and they've got the contract. So it's more the contract that they're making money from is what he's okay. what doing here. So it creates another market outside of the one you have with the oil producer. Basically, now you have a new guy you have gamble. a third. Right. Yeah. Okay. So those contracts gave it control of natural gas. He saw this as reducing natural gas to its financial terms, which is always what you want to do with a, a product that people desperately need to survive. Right. Now, natural gas trading was more complicated than other, time, other kinds of commodity trading. So there's a bunch of different moving pieces with gas. Sure. There's tra- transportation contracts, contracts guaranteeing price, contracts which reserve space on pipelines, uh, different users had different needs. Power plants wanted long-term supplies. Industrial users wanted short-term in case of the economy went bad, blah, right. blah, blah. Utilities wanted more gas in the winter. So there's all these different variables when it comes to gas. Right. So Jeff Skilling came up with an analogy so people could understand it the way his incredible brain was seeing gas. I have a bad feeling. A natural gas contract is like a cow. A cow doesn't just have one kind of meat. Oh, no. It has all different kinds of meat, well, from cow. sirloin to hamburger. There's just different cuts. And people are willing to pay different pieces, different prices for different parts of the cow. In the same way, you could divide a gas contract into many different parts and sell them to people with different needs. Does that make sense? It doesn't. No. Because the, it is. Because gas is the same. But couldn't. But okay. I'm just. I, I Yes. True. I'm just going to take issue with a bad analogy. Okay. Because if you're saying that it's all. Like when you say a cow. Yeah. There are versatile things that come out of a cow. Oh, yeah. It's not all grilled meat. That's right. You could easily say, you know, you get someone who uh, helps fertilize your crops. Someone who uh, gives you milk, someone who gives you the potential for cheese. You also then have meat on there. So those are the things you could talk about. Well, but also, uh, yeah, but so you're you're saying there's even more variables like he has. Like if he's gonna say cow, go with the other things so that aren't just grilled meats. All right. <laughs> anyway, it worked. What were we talking about? It worked. So, so he has now. So he's he's basically created a way to sell oil at different an prices. An oil cow monster. The, the same kind of oil. It's not like it's a different kind of oil, but he's selling oil at different prices in different ways to different people. He's found a way to to cut it up, right? But it's this is not all crude oil. This is like natural gas. Na- well, na- yeah, other na- gas. yeah, right, natural gas. Right. Okay. An executive quote: In the early days, we were printing money. We saw things no one else could see. Mostly because it's not there. Yeah, uh, we had the authority. We had the authority to do anything and everything we wanted to do. We thumbed our nose at any personal policies that the rest of Enron had. So, so the rest of Enron is still working from a ethical, reasonable standard, and these guys are going hog fucking wild. Because Enron really is kind of the first example of the most important people in a place, and nobody gave a shit about the consequence, kind right. of, right? Yeah. Like, that was like, it's like the perfect storm of a bunch of uh, people with no ethics. Basically. Right. Um, another uh, quote, this was the most creative period at Enron. It fundamentally changed the industry. You know, that that is really the problem with uh, the way we handle the bad shit is that there's too much commentary on it. Like there's too much uh, 
sort of thought on how was the action done? How did how now instead of talking about like the screwing, you're like now now walk us through the screwing. How how exactly did they screw everybody? It's like it was a very interesting screwing, Barbara. It was they, an amazing screwing. What they did was they walked in the room and the American people were there. They were willing to put up a fight. Their pants were ripped down and corporate America uh, jammed it inside of them. And it was really something to behold. This is great. So. That's what happened last night with the Supreme Court, like, I unveiling. I don't know what you're talking about. The media was just <laughs> like, well, how did he do it? It's like, you you did it, you idiots. So one of the main ways they were printing money was by changing the way they did accounting. <laughs> it feels like that. Will, I mean, I know that that now is a thing. But changing accounting is such that's an alternative I fact. I feel like you should yeah, it is. It feels it feel like you should accounting is something you actually shouldn't change. Accounting is accounting. Yeah. It's like here's what it well, is. Well, hold on. Ugh. So Skilling wanted to use mark to market accounting. Now with normal accounting, the revenues from a contract are reflected as they arrive. So we talked about sure. they buy the they buy the contract with straight price. As as the t over the time the contract plays out you're you're taking money in and right. you're and you're putting it on your books at that moment right right yes it's accounting as it comes in yes accounting right uh uh so but with market to market accounting that skilling wanted to use the enron models would estimate fair value at the time that they make the contract and then that's what they would say they would say over time it's going to be. So instead of waiting for it to come in, right. they're now saying this is what it's going to be. In 1989, we're going to make this much. In 1992, we're going to make this much. In 19 and then just saying that that's what they're going to make. So they're, they're, they're future evaluators. Basically, right. that's exactly what they are. So they're basically saying what they thought it would be. Right. And that's, that's market to market. But, okay, so with, stock, with stocks, it works like this. If an investor owns 10 shares of a stock purchased for $4 per share, and that stock now trades at $6 per share, uh, mark to market value of their shares is equal to $60. So you're, you're, as right. it goes along, yeah. it, the price is changing. Uh, Skilling says this is a way to do it because it reflects the true economic value for oil. But, but so by using this accounting... Enron has to es estimate the price of gas for 20 years. I mean, and they, and then book it all at once as profits. So they So they so uh, right. So, so instead so of it's waiting just total inflating Oh, it's nonsense. Instead it's of It's totally made up. It's it's completely made up. Right. Instead of waiting for the profits to come in, they're right. just saying, "We're doing this contract and we're going to make this amount." Right. And who writes a contract at first and goes, "I'm going to lose money on this bad boy?" Right. Nobody. So And nobody had ever really done this, right? Like no, no nobody's ever Not for not for oil. You right. can deal with other things like stocks because it makes well, sense because right, at the end of the day, right. the stock is worth, worth a certain amount. Right. But you also don't say what a stock is going to be worth in twenty years. But I think you can do that. But then I'm, I'm, I'm mark to mark marketing happens and other things. Than, but it's right, more stable. Right, right, yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, so Kenley and Enron's board approved the use of mark to marketing accounting. Like right. why, why wouldn't they? Right. And then Skilling persuaded the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, to go for it. Of course. On January 30th, 1992, the SEC told Enron that it would not object to the use of mark-to-market accounting beginning that year. Skilling celebrated with champagne. Less than two weeks later, 
Enron sent the SEC a letter informing them that it had decided that the most appropriate period for using mark-to-market accounting was not 1992, but the year that it just ended, 1991. Wait. So they're going to go back and just say they made a bunch of money they didn't make in 1991. How is that? But okay. So, but how how does that that because no you're so so they're so, sorry. I know this is just complicated. And my brain's very little. So they are they are now taking these future evaluations and they're saying that what they've just made isn't what they made because they haven't taken into account what the SEC just approved. Yeah, basically. Okay. So they're, they're saying, well, we get to we get to pretend. Well, like now that you've money. said that this future money is okay, we're gonna go that back. Applies to last Yo, year. We're gonna do it last year. Right. Okay. In January, 19, uh, in January 1992, Enron announced it was supplying gas for a new power plant in upstate New York, estimated at $4 billion worth over 20 years. Okay. Enron started booking profits even before the plant started operating. Okay. England deregulated their, deregulated their industry, and Enron closed the deal to build a power plant there. 20-year contract profits were recorded immediately. In 1992, Skilling's division income had more than doubled to $122 million. But a fake. Well, I mean... Or his personal income. No, it's fake. No. Yeah, it's, it's no, fake. It's fake. It, it was now the second biggest... Like earner. a restaurant doesn't open up and go, wow, we made a million dollars this year. <laughs> She's like, what? No, you haven't served a meal yet. <laughs> no, but we made a million. No, and actually last year, we made a million five. <laughs> We're millionaires. But Enron did not follow up on the second part of mark-to-market accounting. <laughs> Isn't that the big part? Valuing assets at the current market price, as Wall Street would do at the end of a day of trading. Right. Or a company would do periodically. A reality check. Right, where you go, okay, this is actually how much we're making. Yeah, we're actually on, we're going to make this much because it's or, based on accounting. Or lose this or much. Or lose this much. So they were just sticking with their initial call, and that was that. And there was no incentive for Enron executives to make reasonable calls about how a deal would play out. Smart. Skilling explained his management philosophy, quote, all that matters is money. You buy- <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's your management philosophy? Make money. <laughs> make a bunch of it. Yeah, I'm done that's with my I, quote. That's what I got. I finished my quote. Anyway, that's the course. Yeah. He said, "With you buy loyalty with money." Quote: This touchy feely stuff isn't this, as important as uh, cash. See, see that, like, right? Th- I mean, that's the problem. Is you, you like, you know, how do you argue with people who you can feel like that? You You're can. just like, well, what the well, fuck? Well, that's that's, no. a, that's a psychopath. Yeah, but we the psychopaths run it. Yeah. So, uh, quote: This is from another trader. Jeff always believed pitting three people against each other would be the quickest way to assure the best ideas bubbled to the top. He wanted employees to fight. Jeff also came up with an every six months peer review system. Oh, God. Every employee from managing director down to secretary was reviewed. First, there was feedback, uh, written feedback from bosses and colleagues. Okay. So everyone would write how they felt about it. Very culty. After that, they would go to a hotel where panels would debate and rank each employee while their photo was projected on a screen in front of the entire group. Oh, my God. They're doing your hot or not for your work ethic. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're just sitting there, and you're a secretary? Yeah. And there's a bunch of guys that are just like... Ah, Kathy. Well, let's be honest. Kathy's performance has been dipping lately. I think she sucks. All right, Andy. Yeah, nobody really likes Kathy too much. Um, anyone making money was ranked high 
Right. People would argue, debate, scream, and shout. Sessions for executives sometimes ran from 8 a.m. until after midnight. But it's a cult. That is that is a cult. Like that. That's what it. That's what they like. Yes. The cult mentality of you're now a group. One leader makes the rules. If you don't like the rules, get out. Nobody wants to get out for fear of what out does to you. Everyone is fighting, so creating you a hierarchy. With it and yet what is insane feels fine because everybody's doing it yeah. around you. And you can take someone down just on a whim with yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Enron also had the best compensation packages because of their total bullshit accounting. Right. Banks would lend uh, money based on an estimated project, which was made up. Developers were taking home millions based on projects that hadn't even begun. So the company started kicking ass. I mean, they're fucking kicking Fake ass. ass. Well, they're ki- they're making money on Wall Street. They're not. Yeah, they're just kicking and saying ass is there. Three hundred eighty-seven million in nineteen ninety-three. Four hundred fifty-three million in nineteen ninety-four. Five hundred twenty million in nineteen ninety-five. Enron's stock price tripled because and because executive pay is tied to stock options, r- the rising stock makes them all millionaires, mm-hmm. right? So Kenley was described by a financial <coughs> analyst in 1996, quote, a profound thinker, a great long-term strategist who has been on the forefront of the natural gas industry for many years. He knew where this industry was going 10 years before it happened. Can we flog this reporter? That's because he deregulated it. Yeah, but the, like... I mean, everything he's saying is wrong. (laughs) Yeah, they don't know that right now. I understand, but like, but yeah, I've got a great vision for the future. But the the idea that people are looking at a guy who who set up the way an industry would run by deregulating it and then went to companies to take advantage of that deregulation is not a genius. He's a fucking asshole. It's a fraud. Yeah, it's just an easy like, congratulations. You figured out how to game an easily gameable system. Yeah. So Ken owned a Which mil- is the problem. When 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 ethics were a given, right. you didn't need to worry about this That's stuff. Right. It, and it, it is the snowball effect. It's the one guy who does it, the one person who pushes it. You know, even if they don't get it through, the next guy knows that tactic and is gonna keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Yeah. So Admiral, uh, Ken at this point owned a multi million dollar condominium in the most exclusive section of Houston, a multi-million dollar vacation home in Galveston and one in Aspen, and he used the company's fleet of airplanes for his private use, as did his kids. Enron employees called it the Lay Family Taxi. Linda Lay used an Enron plane to visit her daughter in France. And another time, an Enron jet was sent to Monaco to deliver their daughter her bed. What? What? I mean, just zero rules. What? Like, like not even remotely trying to follow the rules. Like, just fuck it all. What? That's it. Just. (laughs) That's just insane. In December of 19... What, did you want someone to go? You want to go? Watch the bed? I don't know. Yeah, I'll go to Monaco. Whatever. In December, like, don't they have good? It's fucking Monaco. They have nice beds Just there. Just get a bed a, there or get it delivered. It's Monaco. If there's a place with nice beds, it's Monaco. Oh, my God. In December of 1996, Skilling became Enron's new president and chief operating officer. Ken Lay would remain chairman. The company was now generating $13 billion in annual revenues. In made-up fun cash. Uh, ha- employed 11,700 people and operated in 22 countries. But the stock price started to lag. And a financial analyst wrote about being concerned with the complexity of Enron's operations. 
So Skilling created Enron's risk assessment and control department because that's what Wall Street wanted. They wanted some sort of who's looking over stuff. Well, don't worry. So we're we'll, looking over what we'll, we're doing. No, we'll create an internal department that looks over the shit that you we're doing. You know what? You're we got, right. We, we got just hired this guy. We got this. He's in charge of everything. His name's Jeff Skilling. So so that department's supposed to assess the economic, financial, credit, and political risk in every Enron deal over $500,000. But... Quote. Yeah. Again. I mean, that's like a marriage in crisis. The husband being like, I'll be the counselor. (laughs) (laughs) Quote. And everyone was thrilled. A standard and poor's credit rating analyst said they relied on Enron's risk management ability. Quote. You can't overemphasize how important that is. It's the underpinning to everything. It gives you a nice Warm, fuzzy feeling. Enron has such extraordinary risk management capabilities that we look at them differently. That is the credit rating analyst. Good. The drowning kid's the lifeguard. It's, it's, uh, that's weird because that's uh, what happened during the housing crisis. So weird. So Bubbles, it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Fun so, with bubbles. It's total bullshit, right? One executive called the department, the assessment risk department, quote, a hurdle, a speed bump. I, I treated them like dogs, and they couldn't do anything about me. I told my guys to fuck them. Oh, Jesus. And Skilling believed that a company that worried too much about costs would discourage original thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, again, I mean, you're like, I don't have the words to fight the crazy thing you just said. What? Quote, Uh, we are not the Walmart of of the natural gas business. We are the Mercedes-Benz of the natural gas business. No, you're not. You're the Ross Dress for Less because you don't have anything. But there's also not better gas. There is no fucking Walmart (laughs) and it's gas. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus Christ. They haven't found the good area yet. We know where all the good spots are. It's like fishing. Not surprisingly, expenses went through the roof. Quote, people just did whatever they wanted. If you met your earnings target, you'd get your bonus, even if you spent twice your budget for expenses. Oh, my God. So people were just spending fucking money left and right. Yeah. There were new flat panel uh, computer monitors, catered lunches, and Enron purchased cell phones, a fleet of corporate jets, limousines on constant call. Uh, They had their own concierge who would pick up Busy employees dry cleaning, water their houseplants, and shop for anniversary presents. Or drive a, or fly a mattress to Monaco. Under skilling, Enron's stock price became an obsession. So he's totally obsessed with the stock price. A sticker, uh, a stock ticker in the headquarters lobby offered a constant update of the price of shares. When on the road, he would call several times a day to check out how the stock was doing. Employees were constantly encouraged to buy Enron shares. Yeah. On average... Each employee kept more than half of the 401k retirement in Enron stock. There's, there, there is amazing footage of him being like, bye, 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 you know, <laughs> buy that stock. Skilling would arrive at Enron's quarterly and annual profit targets by just coming up with a number based on what Wall Street wanted. There was no going over the books or contracts. He would just make it up. He would call stock analysts and ask them, what earnings do you need to keep our stock price up? And then that's how he would come up. With- oh, that's crazy. That's what we're making. All right. Take care. Yeah, we're that. What a brilliant mind. How did, what a genius thinker. 
Enron also, Enron also relied heavily on mark-to-market accounting to help reach their earning goals. Originally, mark-to-market was just for natural gas future contracts, but by 1997, Enron had extended mark-to-market accounting to every single part of its business. Why wouldn't it? And now dealmakers would go uh, back to contracts, some of them more than five years old, to see if they could squeeze out a few million more in earnings. Oh, my God. So they're just, I mean, they're, they're <laughs> digging up the bodies looking for buttons. So <laughs> they would sometimes restructure a contract, and sometimes they would just make up new numbers to make them seem more profitable. I mean, what the how, how is this, like, who? Hey, Larry, I looked at that old contract that yeah. was bringing in 110 million. Yeah. Turns out it's 125. Oh, good. We need money. Yeah. All right. There it is. All right, cool. A small move in a long-term contract could generate millions in extra accounting profits. Enron also generated earnings through tax avoidance. Beginning in 1995, the company executed complex tax transactions that allowed Enron to keep $651 million in profits. Oh, my God. Skilling had the tax department working like another profit center to help Enron hit earning targets by taking more and more tax savings So the company... The company's purpose is to seem like it makes money. So it's an imagination factory. Yeah, it's totally an imagination factory. I mean, I'm picturing like elves at this point and skilling Santa. <laughs> the Enron accounting philosophy... Philosophy is philosophy, wrong. Philosophy uh, was that financial rules were to be studied to find loopholes to exploit. Uh, one employee said, quote, Say you have a dog, <laughs> but you need to create a duck... On the financial statements. Fortunately, <laughs> what? there are specific accounting rules for what constitutes a duck. Yellow feet, white covering, orange beak. So you take the dog and you paint its feet yellow and its fur white and you paste an orange plastic beak on its nose. And then you say to your accountants, this is a duck. Don't you agree it's a duck? And the accountant says, yeah, according to the rules, this is a duck. Might be the scariest thing I've ever heard. Everybody knows that it's I a mean, dog. I mean, picture that dog. Everybody... <laughs> Miserable dog. It's a fucked up dog. Everybody knows that it's a dog, not a duck, but that doesn't matter because you've met the rules for calling it a duck. I... Enron employed the auditing firm Arthur Anderson to approve their books. They had offices at Enron, which is not normal, because, but they were doing so much business, they had just had their guys there. And suddenly, the accountant geeks were invited to this big frat party. There it is. Which encouraged them to go along with everything. There they it wanted, is. They wanted the party to keep there going. There it is. Right? They're getting concierge. They're getting the fucking Caviar, limo. Yeah. yeah. No matter what crazy thing Enron did, Arthur Anderson went along with it. One accountant, quote, when you look at a deal and you give the answer no, and then they appeal the no, and the answer ends up being yes, you just wonder, why are we even here? Yeah. <laughs> well, because the duck dog is furious. That's why we're here. In March of 1998, 36-year-old Andy Fostow was named Enron's chief financial officer. He had been praised for his creativity, vision, persistence, initiative, and presentation skills, and his innovative thinking on New Deal structures. Translation, shithead. He was, quote, definitely known as a suck-ass. He named his son Jeff. Uh, I thought he was going to name his boy suck-ass. And so, uh, the other one was suck-ass. Right. Andy oversaw the formation of shell companies that... They could use when Enron needed to show earnings and high debt. So what? They're like just now acquiring. Now they just have a bunch of companies offshore. And if they want to swing money in, they bring it in. If they want to take it out, they take it out. They are. And Wall Street. They are the family about to get evicted from the mansion. And they're throwing Picassos at the problem. <laughs> and Wall Street thought this idea was great. Good. 
a Lehman Brothers banker, quote, he has invented a groundbreaking strategy. He figured out how to hide money. Yeah, yeah. That's the problem. Enron operated hundreds of these offshore companies, and all the deals made with them were named by Andy, like Condor, Apache, White Wing, Chuco, Raptors, Rawhide, Choctaw, and Zephyrus. And suck ass. To do this, Andy had to receive an exemption from Enron's Code of Ethics. (laughs) That shouldn't be hard. They're next door. Which was granted. Yeah, of course. Hey, uh, guys, I know we got a code of ethics, but I'm going to do shit that's fucking batshit crazy. Yeah, okay. Is there any more caviar and champagne? All right. Chase Manhattan and Citigroup were happy to do business with Enron. Andy ranked the bankers on how cooperative they were. For example, if they were willing to underwrite $1 billion in a very short time period when needed. So that again, I mean that that like again, that's the that's that that's what we deal with so much now is the fear of like the idea is like, well, but if I don't be immoral, someone else will be and they'll beat me to the immoral that's exactly, treasure. That's exactly right. If we don't do this and someone else will someone do else it. will, so, and so, so I gotta do it. So now they're underwriting too fast to actually fucking look at anything right. and they're giving them money. Je- uh, Jeff Skilling said, quote, I'm not particularly interested in the balance sheet. It seemed to be doing well. We always have money. Yeah. It's a good thing for a CEO you? to say. It's a good thing for a CEO to say. Do you have money? On December 12, 2000, Senator Phil Graham of Texas, after being lobbied by the Koch brothers and Enron, attached a 262-page amendment to the Commodities Futures Modernization Act. So long. Which was then attached to a spending bill that was signed into law by President Clinton right before he left office. Yeah. The Graham Amendment received no public scrutiny or committee hearings. No one knew it was happening, and it radically expanded energy, energy deregulation. And that's the thing is like, you, I think there we get the the whole plot of politics is that make them fight over the the things that they don't agree with, make them fight over those. While Republican or Democrat, oh, either oh, one, either. just doesn't matter. They're they're trying to make these deals. They're they're willing right. to do these deals either right. side. Absolutely, some worse than the others. Yeah. but still, the cancer is within the the cancer is just the within system. the system. Yeah, the system. So, um, so it's this huge deregulation. Energy derivatives could now be traded by private un- unregulated exchanges. This became known as dark oil speculation. Ugh. It would later be revealed that Enron lobbyists and other companies' lobbyists actually wrote the amendment. This was all uh, skilling, who had decided to get Enron into the energy business. Uh-huh. He figured Enron could create an electricity trading business like it created a natural gas trading business. Skilling gave Wall Street analysts a tour of the new energy trading division at Enron. It was very busy with people buzzing all over, but this was just for show. They had bought plasma screens and electronic ticker and furnished a giant empty room. Then they had secretaries and people from around the building come in and act busy that day. Man, that it honestly like like you're you're like it's like it's like the game. It's like you're just gonna like someone's just gonna see a book on a bookshelf and be like, oh, I love this, but it's just half of a book. And you're like, what the hell? It's like they put on a play. Yeah. In January 2000, the New York Times wrote, quote, Enron has set up an online marketplace through which companies all over the world are now able to buy and sell natural gas, electricity, (laughs) coal, plastics, pulp, paper, and oil, and coming soon, bandwidth. Bandwidth is a basic electronic pipe down which companies send their internet traffic. Yes, Enron was selling bandwidth. (laughs) Quote, 
A school with excess bandwidth capacity during the summer will be able to sell its surplus to a company with rising bandwidth demand. What? (laughs) Bandwidth deals that used to take months to close will take seconds. We were the first to do this sort of thing for trading natural gas, says Ken Lay, but we think the bandwidth market will be the biggest of all. Uh, I, I'm, uh, like, now, I mean, uh, now they're just making up. Yeah. Like, there is no bandwidth. What are they t- this isn't a thing. Yeah. No one's trading bandwidth. Nobody knows bandwidth. No, they're... <laughs> He's a good not- buddy. I'll bring him over. Uh, you know, hey, honey. Yeah? We got, like, uh, 30 or 40 extra bandwidth this month. You want to sell it to the Joneses? Yeah, of course. Let's sell the bandwidth. That's a thing. It turns out there was actually no market for bandwidth. Weird. But they still made deals for their not real bandwidth business. Of course. <laughs> Somebody's going to buy the stove on the lawn someday. You're telling me I can get extra bandwidth? Okay. So Skilling uh, then bought Portland General Electric because it was close to California. Enron then bought off California politicians with lobbying. Jeff and Ken told them they could save a ton of money. The state passed a mishmash of compromises that partially deregulated the power market, but not completely deregulated it. And since this was such a stupid half deregulation, it opened the state up to being completely fucked by Enron, which the company immediately started doing. (sighs) The head of Enron's electricity trading division bought 2,900 megawatts of power, then scheduled them on a transmission line that could only carry 15 megawatts at a time. So, so it won't so go making it right. It clogged it. The prices shot up, which ended up costing Californians seven million dollars. He was this guy was immediately confronted about it, about why he did this, and he replied, "Quote: We did it because we wanted to do it. It makes the eyes pop, doesn't it?" Okay, uh, uh, but uh, what's uh, ah, pretty crazy, right? You like fireworks? <laughs> do you? <laughs> We'll blow the whole thing up if you want. When the California power agencies questioned him later, the trader said he was experimenting to find flaws in the state's new rules. Oh, God. Ken Lay publicly assured California that Enron was ethical. (laughs) But when he got on the phone with the chairman of the California Power Authority, Lay said to him, quote, In the final analysis, it doesn't matter what you crazy people in California do because I got smart guys who can always figure out how to make money. Hmm. The electricity trading schemes Enron came up with had names like Fat Boy, Death Star, Get Shorty, and Ricochet. Ricochet. They're all violent. Yeah, Fat Boy is one of the bo- one of the nukes, right? No, this is yeah, this is fucking horrible. I mean, Death Star. Yeah, well, Death Star is obviously the most aggressive. Ricochet. They would ship power back and forth over state lines by selling out-of-state electricity. Price caps became lifted, so Enron could get around price restrictions. Quote, our traders would be able to buy power for $250 in California, and then we would sell it to Arizona for $1,200, and then resell it to California for five times that. I I just, like... That's deregulation. In a nutshell, that's deregulation. Oh, God. Enron traders would also purposely overbook a transmission line, then create a situation where others needed the line to move electricity so they could price gouge at will. Quote, we overbooked the line we had the rights on during a shortage or in a heat wave. 
The, and those that are the, kills people. And those are the rolling blackouts, yeah. right? Those are like what? That's, remember what, those summers? When yeah, they had rolling, where they, those were. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't think I was out here for those, but I remember uh, the rolling. Like they'd call them rolling blackouts because a bunch of people would just lose power, and they'd be like, out. "Sorry, it sucks. Yeah, that's I know. all we got. We got to sorry, roll it's, we're overdoing it." So, and that was what everyone was talking about. Everyone was talking about, "Man, we're using too much energy." Yeah. Then Enron would be paid tens of million. <coughs> Enron would then get paid tens of million dollars to free up the congested line, so mm-hmm. the power could be right. sent somewhere because they can fix it. <clears throat> Enron also had plants shut down to drive up the price of electricity. One Enron executive was recorded calling a Las Vegas power plant employee, "Quote: uh, We want you guys to get a little creative and uh, come up with a reason to go down. Anything you want to do over there? Any cleaning or anything like that?" And the the worker responded, "Yeah, okay. We're just coming down for some maintenance, like a forced." outage type thing it's a good plan the enron executive said quote i knew i could count on you oh my god there were two days of rolling blackouts in june of 2000 which left more than 100,000 businesses and residential customers in dark for parts of two days people were trapped in elevators schools local governments and small businesses had to close and offices shut down costing millions of dollars in lost revenue when questioned ken said quote every time there's a shortage a little bit of a price a price spike it's always collusion or conspiracy or something. I mean, it, it always makes people feel better that way. Oh, God. It's you just you, you you like, yeah, you really have to just accept the idea that they're all lying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And once you do that, you can start to go, OK, I don't. They're all the same. They're all lying. In January of 2001, Enron gave 100000 to Bush's inauguration committee, and Lay himself gave $100,000. Enron gave, Kenny boy, that's what Bush called him, right? Yeah. Enron gave 310000 to the Bush campaign, uh, and, quote, Mr. Lay is a Bush transition advisor. Uh, Enron gave $6 million in political donations. More than 250 members of Congress got contributions from Enron, and 15 high-ranking Bush administrations, Bush administration officials owned stock. California asked for help from the government. Well, that's going to be a problem. They're investing. George W. Bush administration officials said California's problems were because of California had not deregulated completely and that it was not, uh, quote, free market enough. So that uh, that if you take probably if you take away one thing or at least like what, because obviously I'm familiar with some of this. Yeah. But the, what is really the headline is that deregulation is not good, which I already know. <laughs> but now it's like. Yeah. I mean, it's so obvious. Like, the term. Deregulate. Yeah. Uh, So the uh, Bush administration also blamed uh, California's strict environmental standards, which limited the construction of new power plants. Kill more birds. Oh, and Bush called Ken Lay Kenny Boy. Kenny Boy. Vice President President Dick Cheney publicly opposed price controls. Quote, price caps are not a help. They take us in exactly the wrong direction. Yeah, Yeah, I don't use price caps. Ken got Bush to appoint a free market advocate as head of the Federal Energy Regulation Commission, who then resisted price controls for months while Enron fucked California in the ass. Don't you pine for the days when things were on the up and up like that? Nice, normal. Uh, By June 2001, (coughs) after the Bush administration finally implemented interstate power price caps, the crisis suddenly eased and power prices in the state fell. Ah, That's weird, Weird. The Federal Energy Regulation Commission then forced energy companies to tune over email messages, phone logs, and internal memos. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The crisis costs. 
The crisis cost the state of California over $40 billion and led to the recall of Governor Gray Davis, who was replaced by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, you know, when you hear it back. (laughs) When Arnold was confronted by a woman in a supermarket who asked, are you in bed with Ken Lay? Arnold responded, I certainly wasn't in bed with you. I certainly wasn't in bed with you. Like he's in a fucking movie instead of talking to a human being. Yeah. But Enron wasn't doing... I so- was with my maid. We had the baby. <laughs> Sorry, I got too real. But Enron wasn't doing so great either. The company debt was $3.9 billion, And that didn't jive with the whole Enron is uh, super profitable story. Mm, weird. And in February 2001, Fortune magazine published a story titled, Is Enron Overpriced? The writer just asked a simple question. How does Enron make its money? And then she got on the phone and talked to Skilling, and he complained that she, quote, didn't get it and hung up on her. Oh, yes. Enron's PR department quickly called back and got her on a conference call. And on that call, Skilling insisted that Enron, quote, is very uh, simple model. We're a logistics company, not a trading company. He then went on, quote, we are doing it purely right. People who raise questions are people who have not gone through our business in detail, people who don't understand, want to throw rocks at us. We have explicit answers, but people want to throw rocks at us. Anyone, is, anyone who is successful, people would like to take them down based on ignorance. And then he hung up on her again. <laughs> Wait, so she's like, uh, well, obviously something shady. Yeah, right. What? <laughs> so Enron's head of PR uh, called her back and said she, she should meet with Andy Fostow, the head of finance. He's a real suck-ass. You'll love him. And in that meeting, you know, he tried to bullshit her over and uh, she asked about the shell companies that were being run. And he said he couldn't say who was running them because of confidentiality. And at the end of the meeting, uh, when he was alone with her, he said, I don't care what you say about the company. Please just don't make me look bad. (laughs) (laughs) Skilling then had a conference call. (laughs) So now it's all, you know, it's coming out. So Skilling then has to have a conference call with Wall Street analysts. In April 17, 2001, and he said Enron's in great shape. Yeah. One analyst asked why Enron was the only company that could not release a balance sheet along with its earnings statements, and he kept pushing and pushing and pushing when he didn't need an answer, and finally Skilling responded, quote, Well, you're you. Well, uh, thank you very much. We appreciate it, asshole. And <laughs> hung up. The call was being piped onto Enron's trading floor, and when Skilling oh. called the analyst an asshole, the trading floor went crazy and burst into applause. Oh, God. Later, they gave Skilling a sign that read, Ask why, asshole. Yep. So, <laughs> yep. Wear the robes and drink the Kool-Aid, gang. But Wall Street was not happy, as they believed a CEO should be able to handle tough questions. Yeah. And these calls went on, and Skilling would always say there was nothing wrong, and the analysts couldn't get the answers. They started to lose faith, and on stock started to fall. Their very hyped, not real broadband business somehow failed, and California was blaming Enron for the energy crisis. While all this was going on, Ken Lay came into Skilling's office holding fabric swatches for decorating the new $45 million corporate jet he'd ordered. He asked which fabric they should use. Wow. On August 13th, Skilling announced he was leaving Enron. He had been cashing out his stock options for a year, $33 million worth. Ken Lay had been doing the same, taking $78 million. People in the company and outside started to realize there was a problem, but still, Ken told Wall Street, quote, there are no accounting issues, no trading issues, no reserve issues, no previously unknown problem issues. I think I can honestly say that the company is probably in the strongest and best shape that it has probably ever been in. Now, excuse me while I get in this helicopter full of money. (laughs) 
He said he had done an internal investigation and everything was great and yep. that there should be no second guessing the accounting. I'm cancer free. How do you know? I checked myself. I got a mirror out and looked. I looked. After 9-11, Enron's stock began plummeting. Ken told the employees, quote, just like America is under attack by terrorism, I think we're under attack. By he reality. Said, he said they would turn it around and that Andy had done nothing wrong. That's always a good sign. Andy did nothing wrong, by the way. We're under attack by people. It's like terrorists are attacked. Andy didn't do anything. And also Andy's innocent. In early October, some at Arthur Anderson's accounting firm realized that Enron would probably be investigated by the Fed soon. Once an investigation started, they would probably have to retain all documents. They would definitely have to retain all documents. So Enron document shedding, shredding began that weekend. By October 23rd, there was more than a ton of paper. A shedding, a shredding truck had to be hired. Sure. And 30,000. Who knew about those? Yeah, right? Yeah. You know, if they're shredding. We've been waiting for a phone call. If they're shredding trucks, something's wrong. Yeah. Uh, 30,000 email messages and computer files were deleted. It stopped after Arthur Anderson's firm received a subpoena from the SEC. Linda Lake, Ken's wife, sold 500,000 shares of Enron stock 30 minutes before word went public. On December 2nd, at 2 in the morning, Enron's lawyers filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy, the largest case in the U.S. 4,000 people lost their jobs immediately and were given 30 minutes to vacate the building. 62% of the 15,000 employees... Uh, saving plans relied on Enron stock and were now worthless. Justice Department opens an criminal investigation. Uh, a high-ranking executive named Cliff Baxter shot himself in his Mercedes. And uh, Vice President Dick Cheney invoked executive privilege, refusing to disclose the six meetings he had had with Enron executives about how to handle energy policy. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a Senate committee hearing. Ken sure. Lay did not go because of the Fifth Amendment. Skilling came. A senator asked him, in your opinion, what happened to cause Enron's collapse? Well, I'll tell you. I appreciate the question. I am surprised that more people haven't asked it before. I believe that this was a classic run on a bank. There is a problem. <clears throat> there is a problem that I believe is what economists call a systemic problem that is in our economy today that I think you all ought to be addressing what happened is that in the old days, in the 1880s, when there was a run on the bank, it was the bank that went under. That's what happened now. <clears throat> it's that all the banks can pull their money out of a company that is threatened. And if somebody walks to the, you know, claiming to be in a, claiming, uh, an accounting fraud, it's the same in the business world as walking into a crowded theater and screaming fire. Everybody runs for the exits. These are not big numbers in the grand scheme of Enron. If we had time, I think the company would have been fine. I left the company. I have no idea uh, what was going on there. What the problem was. He was asked, uh, when he was asked about Enron's financial dealings, Skilling would answer, quote, I'm not an accountant, over and over. And finally, Senator Barbara Boxer of California asked him what his education was and where he went to school. And Skilling sa- said he had a master's degree from Harvard Business School. And then he laughed. Wow. Cool dude. It was pretty clear Skilling thought he was smarter than everyone else in Washington and that he'd talk his way out of it. He still has no idea. He still is not saying anything. No. He just really does a good job of like... Babbling. Yeah. He's just a babbler. Just mumbo-jumbo. Arthur Anderson's indicted for obstruction of justice. Uh, 28,000 people lose their jobs there. 20,000 at Enron. Uh, Andy Fostow is charged with 96 counts of fraud and blah, 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 a bunch of stuff. He pleads guilty, uh, gets uh, 10 years with no parole if he testifies against Lay and Skilling. That's crazy. He has to repay $23 million. Uh, So... um, But he made a lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, these guys, these guys all think, made a shit. Yeah. I still think they made tons of money. Yeah. Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling went on trial in uh, January 2006. 
Uh, Andy testifies against them. Uh, Skilling is convicted of 19 counts, sentenced to 24 years. Ken Lay, six counts. Um, after the convention, after the conviction, Ken Lay said, quote, We believe that God, in fact, is in control, and indeed he does work all things for good for those who love the Lord. Three months later, he died of a heart attack. Um, so, uh, it took God a while to get the memo. There were lawsuits filed on behalf of the people. Most of them got like $500 or something. But these are, these are I mean, and these are people whose complete Life livelihood. Life savings yeah, gone. Future plan. Yeah. They were so big that the, the Red Cross in Houston had to cut their, uh, f- their you know, expenditures by 25%. They, right. were, they wiped out the fucking Red Cross. Right, right. Um, when asked about Enron, Skilling liked to say, quote, shit happens. Yeah. In January of 2013, the Department of Justice reached a deal, and Skilling had 10 years cut from his sentence. $40 million in restitution was paid to victims. He will be released between 2017 and 2019. Um, Fostow still goes around speaking and, and uh, gets a little bit of money, but sometimes he does it for free to spread the message of how fucked up things are. Quote, whatever you call it, managing or manipulation, it's still going on today. The question being asked by far too many companies is, is it allowed, not is it right? It is possible to follow all the rules and still be misleading. We have a word for this in America, loophole. I was called chief financial officer, but in reality, I was chief loophole officer. A moderator at an event said, the disturbing, the disturbing thing is, is that much of what was done at Enron is being done in the financial centers of the world today. That kind of misplaced thinking could create even more economic havoc if not addressed by policymakers and others in the financial community. Anyway, that was right before the housing crisis. Yeah. And it's still going on today. And yeah. now we have, we're going to have more deregulation. So it should be fine. I, I, you know, I mean, you, you really, you just don't know because you are like confounded by, yeah, I mean, it, it's the weirdest paradox where we live in a world where we are aware for the most part that they are full of it. That they're fucking That they're totally and, full of and it. And pulling all and, kinds of shit. And what we try to do isn't enough. And they're able to hold us off and create political theater or whatever distraction. Mm-hmm. And we are so exhausted from it. And however, that might the tide might be turning in that at a little bit. Um, but they are putting up a fight, obviously, to make it so that, you know, we have to. I mean, it, it's exhausting. And that's yeah. the idea. The that idea is, is idea. that it's you're supposed to tucker yourself out and, and then you'll stop caring and they can keep going. Until, and, until... Another like right now, fifty percent of people have like two hundred dollars in savings. Seventy eight percent have like eight hundred dollars in savings. So if another bubble breaks, yeah. oh, there's it's... no there's nothing for people to do. Yeah, but start breaking everything. Yeah. like like you now you are now one big bubble away. Yeah. from total fucking just that's it. Yeah, and instead of putting the lid on the bubbles. We're putting the bubble wand in the bubbles, and we're drawing in a big breath. <laughs> we're double bubbling. We're about to double bubble. <laughs> We sang Kaz. We sang Kaz. Thank you, Dad. Hey there, people listening to The Dollop. Uh, This is Gareth. Yes, the same guy. Listen, I have a new podcast called We're Here to Help that I'm doing with my friend Jake Johnson. It's basically a call and advice show where we don't say that we're professionals because we aren't, but we try to help people with problems that are important to them. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts, and it is out right now. So go listen to We're Here to Help with Jake and Gareth. We're here to help. 
with Gareth and Jake. I don't remember how we did it. But either way, fun. Half Hour comes out Tuesday, August 22nd, and the episodes will be out every Tuesday and Friday. We're here to help. Oh, hey there, everybody. It's Gareth, you know, from this uh, this podcast. Uh, listen, I've got some stand-up shows. I'm inviting the Garmy, the Gareth Army, to join me for. I will be in Fort Collins, Colorado, August 18th and August 19th. I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 24th through August 26th at Acme. I will be going to the UK in September. Please join me. I will be in Glasgow, September 13th, London, September 15th, Dublin, September 17th, and September 19th, Manchester, Birmingham, September 20th, Bristol, September 22nd, and Cardiff, September 24th. And then in November, I'll be in Australia. November 10th, almost sold out, I think. I'll be in Melbourne, Australia. Then I will be in Northbridge, Australia on November 15th. Adelaide, November 16th. Canberra, November 17th. Brisbane, November 18th. And then I will be in uh, Sydney on November 24th. Go to GarethReynolds.com for tickets. Garmy, let's get at it after it. Let's see you there.